0: The verse we're going to look at a little bit later talks about God's hand being on Ezra. And I was thinking, what does that mean? Um, There's so often that the Bible uses phrases that we feel are so familiar that we don't necessarily think about what they actually mean. And I was thinking, what does it mean if someone puts a hand on my shoulder? And there are a number of things that that would mean, depending on the situation. Imagine that at the end of this uh, uh, service, I sit down... Uh, As often happens, I sit on the seat there, exhausted, questioning whether I said the right things, and uh, perhaps Richard, who is there, just puts a hand on my shoulder. I would uh, uh, interpret that as him saying, well done, I am with you. If we're going into a difficult place and we're uncertain what is to go, perhaps I'm sitting there before the sermon Richard, okay, put that hand on my shoulder. I'm with you. Go for it. When we think about God's hand being on us, there's a sense of him saying, I am with you. Or a sense of him saying, well done. Before difficult situations, I am with you. As we go through things in obedience to him, well done. And sometimes God puts... Or a person will put their hand, I'm standing on the edge of the road and I'm about to step off. I'm standing on the edge of here, which I know worries certain members of the church, which is why I do it, just to worry you even further. But someone puts their hand on their shoulder and pulls you back. It's saying stop. Sometimes we're at a crossroads. We don't know which way to go. And a hand on the shoulder pushes and directs and points. And when God says that he wants to put his hand upon us, it's a hand of love, of gentleness. It's not a rebuke. Sometimes it's a not this way. It's always a hand that says, I'm with you. I'm here. Ezra, then. We're going to have a, a look at the next part of Ezra. Uh, some of you... Uh, may know about Albert Schweitzer. Perhaps many of us won't have heard of him. He was a Christian writer and a doctor and a thinker uh, from the uh, mid-part of the last century. And in 1952, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. He won the Nobel Peace Prize because of his writings about every human being having dignity and the right to life. And uh, he did that uh, based on his Christian faith and uh, was a, a leading thinker uh, a, around the, the whole importance of humanity. And there's a story about uh, him going to receive the Nobel Peace Prize in America. And that he, uh, uh, Chicago or New York or somewhere, he was going to a major American city to receive the prize. And he was on the train. And the uh, press knew that he was going to arrive, and it was a big story. So there were a load of photographers and uh, journalists on the platform, uh, you know, with those big old cameras, with the big bulb and the big light that flashes, ready to take a photograph of him as he stepped up off the train, this uh, dignified gentleman so that they might honor him in the press. And uh, he opens the door of the train and sees all these press and the flashes go off. And he raises his hand, the story goes, I I was reading it this week. He raises his hand and he says, stop, 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 stop. He says, you can take my photograph in a minute, but I need to do something. He goes back into the train and he comes out carrying the suitcases of an elderly black lady who had been on the train with him. And he carries the suitcases uh, down and through and gives them to the porter. Now, that may or may not, we may or may not understand the significance of that, but in America, in the 1950s, pre-Martin Luther King, that was a very significant act. And when he had given the suitcases over to the porter and and asked them to look after this elderly lady, he goes back onto the train, stands there, and they let him take his photograph. And one of the journalists wrote this, that's the first time I ever saw a sermon walking He was a man who had written and talked and was leading people's thinking about the dignity of every human being, but he walked it, he did it. It was instinctive to him, not just to talk about it, not just to write about it, not just to receive praise, but it was instinctive for him to do, even if that received uh, criticism or made others feel uncomfortable. So we're trundling our way through the book of Ezra from time to time when I get the opportunity to speak. Ezra is a story about the people of God returning to Jerusalem after they'd been uh, destroyed and ransacked and they'd been exiled for a number of years and the temple had been destroyed and uh, the Zerubbabel, which is a great name, uh, comes and leads the people and they're in a miraculous ways they're given permission to rebuild the temple. And uh, in previous weeks we've looked at how they returned and the similarities to us, not the we needed to rebuild a physical building, but we've needed to rebuild a community. And we talked in the last time I spoke about how they purified themselves, ready for the use of the temple. And all of these are available on our website. You can go back and have a look at them. And now in chapter 7, this is when Ezra actually appears. He probably wrote the first six chapters, but he isn't in them. They're all about Zerubbabel. But these uh, now is about Ezra. And Ezra is described as to who he is. He's a priest uh, and an important leader. And he's been in exile in Babylon, and God calls him to go and return to the temple that has been established. And uh, we have a little description of what he was like. Verse six, he was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the law the God of Israel had given. So he didn't know the whole of the Old Testament because half the Old Testament hadn't been written yet. In fact, some people reckon he wrote quite a large part of the Old Testament, but it hadn't been written yet. But he knew the stuff that Moses had been given. He knew that, he was well-versed in the law that had been given to Moses. So that's part of the description of him. And then we have this word, uh, then the king granted him everything that he asked. Which is quite a, 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 a statement, is it? isn't it? it? That he, 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 anything he asked the king for, he got. Now, how was he so successful? What was the secret to that? What is the, the formula that we can learn that whatever we ask for, we'll get? Well... Uh, there isn't much of a formula, except that what is clear is that what he asked for was the, well, actually was what God wanted. And so he was asking the stuff that God was putting on his heart to ask for. And Jesus says very much the same thing, because in the New Testament, Jesus says, on a number of occasions he says, whatever you ask in my name, you will receive. And in my name is not a little liturgical phrase that you tack on to a prayer to make it more powerful. In my name is a heart attitude of saying, I am asking that which Jesus is asking. And the prayers that are the prayers that Jesus would ask are the prayers that are more successful than the prayers that are not what Jesus asked for. So it's no good asking God to bless our own plans if they're not the plans of Jesus. The king grants him everything he asks because God has told Ezra what to ask for, and God is directing and blessing. The hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. We've looked at that in a moment, uh, a few moments ago, and we'll come back to it. The hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. God was directing and blessing him, and we spoke what that means, that God is with us, that God is saying, well done. There's a sense of saying, stop or this way, but all of that equals success. And it's clear that this isn't saying the hand of God was on every human being. No, the hand of God was specially on Ezra. There was something different about Ezra's experience and relationship with God that means it was described as the hand of God was on him. And it was successful. And... He, therefore, inspired others to come with him. We read that the other men and families joined him to go down to exile, and then this next wave of people returning uh, from, from Babylon in exile. So Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh king, and he began his journey from Babylon on the first day of the fifth month, first day of the first month, and he arrived on the first day of the fifth month for the gracious hand of his God was on him. Notice the repeat, that phrase, God's hand was on him, is said twice in two different ways, which is always, as you know, the writer underlining something. It's the highlighting pen. It's saying, this is important. And then he says, for. So what's going to come now is the reason that God's hand was on Ezra. And this is what I want to think about for a few moments. Because if we want to have a sense of God's hand being upon us, of God directing us, of God saying, well done, of God guiding us, of a sense of his presence that never leaves, then what is it that we can learn from the description of Ezra as to why God's hand was on him? Because, for, firstly, he had devoted himself to the study of, and, and we'll come to the and in a minute. We've already spoken for a few moments ago that he knew God's word. He understood. He knew it. He'd studied it. He thought a lot. So when he asked the king for what God was asking for, it was rooted in what he knew of God because he'd studied his law. But that wasn't all. Because not only does he study, he does something else which is really important he observes, he keeps it, he does it, he walks it, he lives it out. And the, the hand of God was on him because there was an integrity between what he said and what he did. He walked his sermons, he lived it out. So I want to ask two questions. What does devotion to observance look like today? And what does God's hand being on us look like today? You'll see the text line, uh, number is up there. If you want to text a question to Deb, uh, we're going to give the opportunity just to, uh, a few minutes. If you want to come back and say, what did you mean by that, or what about this? Uh, and we'll address what we can if t- as time allows. So, what does devotion to observance today mean? Well, I want to uh, just pull out a few things. Uh, to make it clear it is based on knowledge if we're going to carry out and live out God's words we have to know what God's words are but it's not simply about knowing what they are it's knowing why he says them it's knowing the heart of God. It's living the story that we understand why God says, do this or don't do that. And I think that's crucial. And I know uh, that Sam and Sarah and our youth work believe that's really important for us to understand in what we do in Ignite and Infusion is why. Why? does God say this? This is really important. It's not simply, God told me to do this or not do that, but why? If we're going to live it out, if we're going to keep it, we have to understand the heart behind it. That means, yes, listening to teaching and, and learning from others. And there's a whole load of resources on our YouTube site, have I said, the devotions that we put out through the week and the studies in John that I've been doing. Uh, If you want to go verse by verse through John, you don't have to go back to chapter one if you're late to the party. Uh, Next week, I'll be starting chapter 13. Today's the last verse of chapter 12. Uh, And uh, you can just go back to anywhere and start wherever you want. You can start with today's if you want. They go up every Sunday. Uh, But just feed ourselves. Whether it's me or somebody else, allow God's teaching to come into our lives, and it's really important that we listen to other viewpoints, and one of the dangers, increasingly, of our world and social media, is you get sent the stuff that people think you'll agree with, and the real value of community is that we sit in a small group, and we listen to other people who see things differently, and we can't flick away, we can't turn them off, and we can't uh, leave the room, because they're in our presence. So as we know scripture, it's really important that we learn to do that in relationship. The Bible was written to communities. It wasn't ever written to an individual. It is a great thing that you can have the Bible on your phone, or you can have your own version of the Bible. That is a great thing, but that's not primarily how it was intended to be read. It was intended to be read with a group of people who say, what are you going to do about that? What do you make of that? How does that make sense? Why I don't understand that. How do I do that? So I want to encourage you to, to be part of a group, whether it's an informal group or whether you want to join a small group. If you want to talk to Deb or I about joining a group, please do do that. But his observance too, I suspect, was not based on empty ritual. I say that because one of the things that the prophets have said just prior to the temple being destroyed was one of the reasons that God wasn't happy with what was going on was that they kept the ritual without the heart obedience. They did things that were said in in Moses' law, but they didn't understand why and their heart didn't match it. And we need to know why God says things. It's really important to understand that it's not simply about keeping rules, but as we understand the basis, and and it's easy to understand the basis because the basis has been made abundantly clear in the Bible, it's love. Paul says in the verse I keep on quoting all the time over the last few months, if I speak in the tongues of angels, if I have faith that can move mountains, if I can fathom all mysteries but have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. Jesus says, everything is based on love. And we need to understand why things are there. And religion gets into ritual where we keep the rules, but we don't keep the reason for them. Jesus talks, oh, no, let's do a Dilbert cartoon. Let's do a Dilbert cartoon to break it up. Uh, I can't approve this purchase. Uh, This is somebody, uh, the vendor, purchasing manager, talking to Dilbert. I can't approve this purchase without three vendor quotes. Dilbert says, only two companies in the whole world make this sort of product. And the man says, if I bend the rules for you, everyone will want to bend the rules. Maybe you could only bend the rules when it makes complete sense to do so. Jesus was criticised by the Pharisees, or a particular religious grouping, who were um, really good at keeping the law. He was criticised because his disciples picked up some grain on a Sunday and uh, and uh, broke it off and ate it. And the law says that the grain was not to be picked on a Sunday. Now, the reason on a Sabbath, on a, sa- a Saturday, the reason the law said that was that workers, landowners, were not to exploit servants the slaves and the oppressed they were not to make people work seven days a week you could not employ somebody or demand that somebody picked your grain on a sunday that was the reason for the law but it wasn't that someone who was hungry could not pick the grain. And that's what happens in legalism, in ritualism, where we've got the sense of the rule and we're so consumed with fear. And As religious people, we're so prone to it. We're so consumed with fear that we actually do the very opposite of what the law was intended, which was to bless and encourage and express love. And so this guy is not going to allow Dilbert to do something because he can't get three quotes because there's only two companies. Maybe you could only bend the rules when it makes complete sense to do so. That would be chaos. And religious people are so frightened of chaos. Everyone thinks they have a good reason to bend the rules. And Dilbert says, "Is the real problem here that you were bullied in school and you're using this job for some sort of sick revenge. Sometimes the damage that's done to us causes us to retreat to the safety of rules. And we miss the heart. And the heart is grace and love. Now you need four Vendor quotes. Observance is not empty ritual. It's not keeping rules that we've no idea why they were made. It's knowing and applying the purpose. It's a heart thing. That's what they lacked. That's what Amos and, and uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah said to them. It's, va- it's vain what you're doing because your heart isn't in it. And it looks different in every generation. Because things change, but the heart doesn't. And it means to do it when no one is watching. When we don't feel like it. That's real observance. Observance isn't behaving in church. It isn't even behaving when you're with other Christians. Real observance is how you behave when there is nobody watching. But Jesus, and Ezra observed it from the heart when nobody else was watching, and so God's hand was on him. He knew God's favour because what we do really matters. What you do speaks so loudly that I cannot hear what you say. Ralph Waldo Emerson. It's not what we sing. It's not what we studied, it's not what we can quote, it's what we do and if we we don't observe God's commands, if we don't live them out, then nobody can hear what we say. Legalism, blind obedience to things we don't understand, damages, why does God say things? What is he after, what does he want? What is he trying to teach us? What does that look like today? If I asked you to write a list of the things you think God really wants us to practice, to actually do, to live out in reality, your list might be different to mine. You might, perhaps that's the thing to do. Perhaps I should just stop now and say, think of your own list. Here's mine. In at number five, I think God's asked us to repent to be people of humility, that be people who know where we've done wrong, who can acknowledge it before others and say sorry, who can acknowledge it before God, who live without blame, who are living without excusing others, who live in an honesty and integrity of saying, I don't get it right. And that's one of the things that, that, that true observance of the law was, it was not about the sacrifices, it was about what the heart felt. It's no good doing all kinds of rituals if deep down we are filled with pride and arrogance, or perhaps we're just running away from owning our own mistakes. And repentance is my first one. The second one will be the obvious one, is love. But let's just be clear on what the Bible means when it says love. Again and again, Jesus talks about it. But he's talking about love for enemies, he's talking about love for strangers, he's talking about love for the poor, he talks about love for believers. And he's talking about an action, not a feeling. And if we want God's hand to be on us, if we want to know his presence in our lives, we need to commit to love. Now, there will be an element of repentance all the time, going, Lord, I've messed up again. But he sees the heart that desires to love. But if our commitment is to words, not actions, if our commitment is to an hypocrisy, that makes us actually ungentle, unkind, and unpleasant people to be with. God's hand is not with us. Because we're not keeping the law. And that will express itself thirdly in mercy. The people of God are the people who act, act out the love of Jesus Revealed on the cross, the God who says, neither do I condemn you, come and sin no more. That if we hold on to grudges or blame or judgments of others, if we decide who's in and who's out, and if we think there are people who we cannot associate with or be with or be friends to, the hand of God can't be on us. Because Jesus is the friend of sinners. And you'll know that one of my passions is that we understand and know that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He makes that abundantly clear. That is his mission. And therefore, when we join in with being a disciple, a follower, a copier, an imitator of Jesus, then what we're doing is seeking to save the lost and restoring wholeness, bringing healing to the whole person. That's what it means to observe Scripture. And lastly, that will result in being people who pray for the kingdom coming. And we talked about that earlier in our walking in whatever, that we're people who are saying, God, bring your kingdom in. God, this world is not as it is, as it should be. This world is wrong. This world is broken. This world is damaged. Lord, bring your kingdom in. You've commanded me to pray. Your will be done. Lord, I will do that. So those are my five things to keep and to have a sense of God being with us. Excellence is not an act, but a habit. And the things you do most are the things you will do best. We practice obedience, living it out. Not empty rules that we don't understand, but we, un- we get to the heart of why each command is in the Bible. What is it about? And we live it out. And then God's hand can be upon us. Because I think there is a difference between God being with us and God's hand being on us. God is with all of us, but he wants to be more than just with us. He wants his hand to be upon us, guiding us to the right tasks, giving us strength to overcome the difficulties, giving wisdom in times of need and producing fruit that lasts, and making us attractive to the right people. Because people want to find out about the God that we are acting out our commitment to. We are disciples. We're not just believers. We are disciples, copiers, followers, imitators. Some questions for reflection. Where have we seen God's hand on us? Where would you look back and say, yeah, God's been with me, he's led me, He's blessed me, he's encouraged me, he's shown me the way, what was going on at that time. And what what observance is God calling us to more of right now? What is it that he's asking us to do? Let's pause for a few moments. Um, so,
1: first question, um, I thought we'd start with this one because it's not actually on your sermon, but I think it's quite pertinent now. Um, when we pray for peace, e.g., uh, in the Ukraine, we know God has directed some wars in the Bible to bring certain things to pass. Should we be careful about what we pray for in war zones as the outcomes are only in the eyes of God?
0: I think that the Bible is explicit that God wants peace and he wants us to be peacemakers and that there is a journey through the Old Testament so you get to Jesus and the, and the latter prophets making that very clear. So I think, uh, I think the second thing is that I think it's explicit that God is against oppression and injustice. I think there may or may not be a time to take up arms against injustice. But I think personally that that is the last resort because it's often ineffective, it escalates. Undoubtedly in the current situation there are things on both sides that are not good, not right, but fundamentally people have the right to choose to live in the land they own. And I think that's very clear in the Bible, the sense of land belonging. Mm. So I, I I do think using the first part of the Old Testament and ignoring what Jesus says is quite problematic. We have to work out the journey and how Jesus corrects the way the Old Testament was misused. You know, when he says, but I say to you, mm. love your enemies, it's quite clear.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I just thought I'd put that one in there because we're Thank spending you. more time this week Just get me into and trouble. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... Uh, Someone, So you talked about um, love being our... You often talk about love being our primary, and someone said, in making love our primary law that trumps all else, is there not a danger that we can come to wrong conclusions and or actions even sincerely? Do humans instinctively know what godly love is?
0: I think that it is possible to confuse what love is, undoubtedly. I think it, it is possible to confuse lust for love. I think it is possible to confuse self-interest for love. But actually, I think 1 Corinthians 13, I think the teaching of Jesus is Galatians 5, I think there is enough there to explain what love should be. That we can allow scripture to challenge behaviors that we say are loving that are not loving
1: Mm. um and i think as well that you mentioned about the bible and studying the bible that's got to alter our view of what love is so you can't we it's not that we instinctively know as humans but if you're rooted in the bible like you're saying
0: yeah i i think if jesus commands us to love one another but says, oh, by the way, you won't know what that means. I think that, <laughs> <laughs> I think that without allowing God's spirit to direct us, we can uh, delude ourselves as to what it means. Yeah. But I think if we study scripture, it will become clear.
1: Mm. Which takes us on to there's another little set of questions about studying scripture. You said mm. about um, discussion in relationships, mm. um, so, um, I wrote this question down really quick, so I'm just trying to work out what it... So, where is there a place for... Is there a place for a quiet time alone? Yes. Or, and what is the balance? And then the, the end part of that question was, what do you do, Donald? <laughs> uh,
0: there is absolutely a place for reading the Bible on our own. Absolutely. I don't... I apologise. So how do you bring miss... that
1: in, in with the discussion in the...
0: Because I think you have to do both. And I, I couldn't tell you what the balance is. You know, I just think that if in the rhythm of your life you only ever read the Bible on your own and you never allow somebody to teach you it or you never allow somebody to say, uh, this is what I think and how are you doing it, those three, like, three legs of a stool, you need all three. So it's
1: like a small group where you're discussing it amongst a group, something like this where you're teaching and then on your own.
0: Yeah, you see the... see Ezra was a teacher of the law there is no place in the bible where they thought you didn't have to be taught what the context is what the background is and part of the thing about teaching is is it goes back to your question about love it allows somebody to challenge your own interpretation which suits you Mm. and and I think that's really important but the, the three have to be held together I don't ever want to be saying you shouldn't read the bible on your own but it's a To me, it's a bit like saying I don't need to go to church. It's just that we need each other. We need to be encouraged and and trained and developed. And I think that our culture is increasingly, and this is part of what's going on in Ukraine, increasingly we're just going into groups of people who just agree with us. Mm. And that's incredibly dangerous for the world, incredibly dangerous for the church. We need to be... Able to learn from people who see things differently. I we ne- go. I never thought of it like that. And that's really how you learn and grow. Um, that's why you know the whole model of disciples the, 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 Jesus was taking something that was common, which was teachers had folks who sat with them for years, learnt what they learned as a group, and then passed it on. And I think that's how the Bible is meant to be so. partnered.
1: To challenge us, then up to you how uh, <laughs> close to the thing you get. Someone's asked about the empty rituals.
0: Oh, you didn't, I didn't answer how I do it.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah, go on. Then. Well, uh, uh,
0: it's it's complicated because I studying the Bible every week to teach it. So it, it, there are, I read the, the uh, while I'm walking. I read some prayers and Bible and verses just for me. And then I'm always rooted in Ezra or John. Uh, so I'm a little bit of a, an odd person. But I, as you will know, I like to discuss things. I like to say, what do you think about this? Uh, I will discuss that with other members of the team. And we will, from time to time, have quite a long discussion about things. <laughs> and I think that's really healthy.
1: He's got his own, um, he's made his own prayer book. You're going to publish it someday? Nah. He adds to it. <laughs> <Yeah>. Continuously. <laughs> Ask them about it at the door. Yeah. Um, so, to challenge us, because you're mm. saying about... it's good to challenge each other. So, someone's asked about the empty rituals. What are examples of these in this generation? What might we be doing?
0: For my generation, I think there was an empty ritual of you've got to have your quiet time. Mm. You've got to read the Bible for 10 minutes every morning and forgotten what it was five minutes later. And it was empty. And actually, we need to meet with God. There's a brilliant video, which I think we'll publish, that Judy did about this, we showed this morning about being still. And she just says that being still wasn't about having to actually be still, it was was about quietening the heart that she found best to do whilst walking, which I think that's a classic example. We think, be still and know that I'm God, I have to sit quietly. And actually, you can quieten your heart while knitting or walking or swimming, I don't, do you see what I mean? Yeah, yes. So I think there was, that's an empty ritual. I think that sometimes worship is an empty ritual.
1: Mm.
0: We come we sing the songs and, and the heart isn't engaged and that's a danger and a risk for us. My generation, I don't know about other generations. What would we say for your generation?
1: <laughs> I knew you were gonna say that. <laughs> um, I, well, my generation, I do think the quiet time comes in. I think there's almost like a, a, I'm not even sure if it's an empty ritual. It's more like a superstition. You read a verse. You read the verse for the day, and you're OK. You're mm. covered. It doesn't really matter what it. Yeah. Um,
0: and there is a there is a danger. Uh, do I need to turn something off, Mark? Because there's kind of whistling up here. I don't know. It's a hearing aid, it's a hearing aid is it? Is that your hearing aid? Not <laughs> me. <laughs> uh, What were we going to say then?
1: Oh, I said about reading a verse for the day.
0: Yes, I think, you know, I've got the app. I get a verse every day, pings to me at 5 o'clock, and I find that helpful, but there is a danger. Mm. I've done my relationship with God because I've looked at the the message that's come through.
1: Yeah. Can you explain about the role of the Holy Spirit in empowering and helping us to do this? Because I guess that's linked in that it doesn't go...
0: Uh, it's absolutely crucial to allow God to fill us with his spirit, that we can't, by our own effort and our own willpower, keep the law. We can't do all that God asks of us. So I think daily there's a prayer, Lord, fill me. Lord, come by your spirit and fill every part of me. Beginning with the repentance, Lord, you know how I've done things wrong. And, and trans, transformation is this really powerful Partnership between me saying this is what I want to do and me also saying, and I can't do it, God. And when the heart releases and says to God, come and fill me, I can't do this on my own strength. So I think it's absolutely crucial and a distinctive of our, of our faith that we're not trying to be better, we're allowing God to transform us.
1: So, would that play into? Your quiet time, your small groups—as in, how would that look? If I'm wanting to be filled by the Holy Spirit over and over again, where would I build that in in my life?
0: Uh, well, I think that's the prayer at the beginning of everything, at the beginning of the day. Lord, fill me. Lord, use me.
1: Uh, so it's more of a state of mind as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's... I think, I think there's a danger of becoming a ritual. Well, that's what I was... <laughs> of, I have to say, this prayer in this way, in this fashion, with these people at this time, mm-hmm. that's that's ritualism. But a heart attitude that says, Lord, fill me, and opens ourselves up to receiving his spirit. It's an incredible thing that God would come and live within us, that we're temples of his Holy Spirit. It's an incredible thing. Mm-hmm. And, and we need to just keep allowing that.
1: Second to last question on a slightly different topic, although I'll check in a minute if there's any more. Um, As Christian leaders, how do you decide how much you support others, and how can we support ourselves as a church?
0: Oh, how long have we got? That's such a (laughs) good question. I think that you can't, we can't support any individual can't support everybody. So I think you, 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 you commit yourself to three, four, five, six, seven people who you will be there with, but you can't do more than they ask or are willing to do for them and want. You can't fix people's lives. So there's, a, so, I mean, there's a whole load to unpack. There's an element of, of us saying, we'll walk with you, but you have to ask Jesus to help you there's an element of us not trying to solve and fix things for people and not spreading ourselves so thin. So my vision and model for the church is that if all of us are caring for half a dozen people, everyone gets cared for. If you expect Donald to care for everyone, you're all, we're all, it's a disaster. Mm. And if you try to care for everyone, you're going to be wrecked. And if
1: everyone's expecting everyone else to care for them
0: Uh, and that they, yeah. Yeah, disaster. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Um, I think that's that. And how can we support ourselves as a trip? Yeah, it's kind of yeah, answered that. And then the last question, yeah, I'm going to throw in here. So beforehand, we we have a time of prayer um, where the team that are doing stuff pray together. And I said I haven't had any questions. In turns out it's because the sim card wasn't working. Um, and Donald said, Well, I know what I'd ask myself. And we said, Well, you can't leave that hanging. And he said, Well, no, I can't. I'm not going to set you up. So, Donald, what what would you have asked yourself (laughs) on this sermon? That's my question.
0: Um, I think (laughs) that's really unfair. That's really unfair. I'd ask myself, uh, how much do I need to observe to have God's hand on me?
1: Are you going to answer it, or are you going to leave that for us? (laughs) (laughs) to?
0: Well, I don't know the answer. That's why I'd ask the question. I I think it's clear that God's hand can't be on someone who says, I'm not going to bother to put this into practice. But it's also clear that God's hand isn't on... isn't expecting perfection from me. And that's the mystery of the grace of God, that somewhere in the middle is this place where he says, you're not finished, but I can use you.
1: But I don't think... I think you could, if you go at it from that question, you can fall into the trap of saying, well, I'm gonna do the minimum. Uh, so yeah, it's hands yeah, yeah. on me, so where's the point? You know, what can I yeah. get away with, which yeah. isn't the right?
0: Yeah, and there's two dangers. You said one is you said you ask the minimum, absolutely. that's a mm. really bad question, what can I get away with? And the other one is, is one a sort of sense of despair that I'll never be good enough mm. for God's hand to be on me. Mm. Uh, and I guess the other question I'd ask myself is, is it arrogance? to say God's hand has been on you. Mm. it said of Ezra, His God's hand was on him. But then maybe Ezra wrote that. So was he saying that of himself? Mm. I'm not gonna answer that because I don't know the answer. Excellent.